All right, so I have a question for you just to get you thinking about some of where we're going to head in this message and in this series. The question is this, how do you feel about self-driving cars? How do you, how does it make you feel? Now, what do you think, how do you feel when you see a story or maybe you're riding down the street and you see one, right? How do you, how do you feel about self-driving cars? Some of you probably like, yeah, it's the future. I can't wait to have one. I can sleep on the way to work, right? Others of you are like, oh my gosh, it's terrifying because all these people will be asleep on their way to work and I don't know if they're going to hit me. And, right? Like, it, it's such an interesting thing to think about because it's definitely coming, right? It's not like, well, it might happen. It's definitely happening. Now, we don't know how soon. We don't know what exactly it'll look like or how exactly it'll be regulated or what exactly form it'll take. We don't know how pervasive it will be, but self-driving cars are coming. And for some of us, it's really scary because we can think about the disruption that it'll create, right, as you think about what it does to transportation industries, what it does to shipping, you know, those sorts of things. It could be a very disruptive technology, and so that creates some angst. It could also be kind of exciting and cool and interesting, right? Some of you maybe even make your living uh, in different ways that are kind of connected to trying to think through the future of self-driving cars. But here's the thing. They're coming. It's part of tomorrow's world. And you probably feel some sense of uncertainty, some sense of confusion about it, because every time we have things in tomorrow's world, it's confusing and uncertain. In fact, there's only one place on earth where tomorrow is not confusing and uncertain, and it's at Disneyland's Tomorrowland, (laughs) right? Because that's so old. We were just there, and it's like so outdated. It's the only part of Disneyland that's totally outdated is Tomorrowland, which I just find unbelievably ironic. But, but tomorrow's world is confusing and uncertain, and it's not just technologically confusing, it's morally confusing, and it's relationally confusing, and, and we live in these kind of uncertain and confusing times right now, and then when we look ahead and we go, what, what's the world going to be like for our kids, for our grandkids, for their kids? One thing that's for sure is things are not as simple as they used to be. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they're worse. That doesn't necessarily mean they're better, but they're definitely not as simple. It's complex. It's confusing. And here's the thing. Ephesians is about equipping God's people for tomorrow's world. That's what Ephesians is all about. That's why we're going to take our time. This series is going to go almost 40 weeks, and so it's actually the slowest we've ever gone through a book of the Bible, just kind of verse by verse, a few verses at a time. We'll just look at these different chunks, because what this book is ultimately going to do, as we'll see today, is is shape us and form us to faithfully be God's people in tomorrow's world. Now, I want to share with you a place where you can get some resources on Ephesians. If you're a person that likes to dig deeper, you can go to redemptionaz.com slash Ephesians. And there you can get a study guide. You can get links to some books and videos and other things that will help you go deeper. Another thing you can get there is a simple plan to join me and some other folks in our church in memorizing the book of Ephesians. It's actually only 155 verses and spread out over about 40 weeks. It's pretty doable. It comes out to three to four verses a week. And so if you want to join in with that, that's fine. It doesn't make you a Navy SEAL Christian. If you don't do it, it doesn't make you a you know, JV Christian. It, you know, just, it's just another way to help get the word into your life and into your heart and help you to engage with this even more. So go to that website and you'll be able to get a lot of different things. But we're going slowly through the book. So what we're going to do today 
is do kind of the big picture. You actually have the opportunity. This is pretty cool. You're going to have the opportunity to leave today and say, I just learned a whole book of the Bible. So you can impress your friends. When you're watching football later. They probably aren't asking about that. But if, you, if they were, you could tell them. So you'll get the big picture today. And the key background for this book comes really in the first two verses. So if you have your Bible, uh, open it back up again there. It begins this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we sign our letters with our name at the end. In these days, people signed a letter with their name at the beginning, kind of like how you get an email and it says, oh, this email's from Bruce. Oh, okay, I know who it's from. That's how Paul starts. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That word apostle means sent one. It means someone that had physically seen the risen Jesus and was commissioned by Jesus to go be a messenger of his gospel. And so that's who the apostle Paul is. Interestingly, Paul wasn't always a big Jesus fan. In fact, when we studied the book of Acts last year, we we first were introduced to Paul, and he went by the name Saul, and he was persecuting Christians. He was arresting them. He was a very intense religious Jew who did not like Jesus and did not like the people of Jesus and was arresting them and overseeing their executions. And in the middle of that, Jesus, risen from the dead, shows up and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he changes his whole life. And Saul goes from being Saul, the persecutor, to Paul, the promoter. And he spends the rest of his ministry traveling throughout the Roman world, establishing new church communities, teaching the gospel, sharing the faith. That's who he is. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He didn't just decide to be an apostle. I'm going to hang out my apostle shingle. No, he was chosen by the Lord for that. Who's this letter to? Well, it says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we hear the word saints and we think of like the venerated people who are, they really are the Navy SEAL Christians. But actually the scriptures use the word saints to just describe anyone who's a follower of Christ, who's been set apart as one of God's people. So this is to God's people who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now almost every scholar agrees that this letter was not written just to one local assembly of Christians, but rather it was sent to Ephesus where it would then circulate throughout Ephesus because Ephesus was such a big city. It was probably the largest city in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, at about 250,000 people. So get this, it was the leading city in the richest region of that part of Asia. So it's like New York City, right? New York City, you kind of think of the Northeast, there's a lot of money, a lot of old money, and New York's the place where all the culture kind of emanates from. That was Ephesus. And we're introduced to Ephesus back in Acts chapter 19. So if you have your Bible, you can keep your finger in Ephesians, but go back to Acts chapter 19. This is what we studied most of last year. And as we uh, studied it, one of the more interesting chapters, I thought, was Acts chapter 19. And in Acts chapter 19, here's what happens, is Paul shows up in Ephesus, and he encounters some people who know a little bit about the gospel story, but they haven't received the Spirit, and so he fills them in on the rest of the story. They receive the Spirit. And then it says in verse 8 that he entered the synagogue and for about three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So this was kind of his standard practice. He'd show up to a city, go to the synagogue where the other Jews were, since he was a Jew, and he'd reason with them about Jesus. Said he was there for about three months, persuading, but then it says this in verse 9, but when some became stubborn, 
and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's what they called Christianity, the way, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took his disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So every place Paul went, he would go to the synagogue, and every place he went, he'd face obstacles. But he does something in Ephesus that's pretty unique. He actually, after the three months in the synagogue, he says, okay, I'm going to take my show over to the hall of Tyrannus. He just rents out a public lecture hall. And he spends every afternoon there meeting with people. And so many people, right, because this is this whole region, right? Like if you're in New York, if you're anywhere in the the Northeast, you tried to get to New York to see Hamilton, right? Because like it's there, right? If you're anywhere in Asia Minor, you're trying to get to Ephesus to hear Paul because this is such an interesting thing. And it's not just that he's speaking, but he's also doing miracles and and demonstrating real spiritual power. And this is a significant thing in in Ephesus, because Ephesus was also known as the metropolis of magic. It was this place, it was the home of Artemis, who was this very powerful deity that people worshipped and really kind of looked to to have spiritual power. And there was this sense in Ephesus that if you could just sort of lock in the right magic phrases, you could have power over reality and over the gods. And so that's actually why in the book of Ephesus, one of the, or the book of Ephesians, we'll see power and strength and might is a big theme because that was a big thing that people were paying attention to. And we saw that in Acts chapter 19, because in Acts chapter 19, there's these Jewish exorcists who are the, the sons, these seven sons of a man named Sceva. And they kind of stumble upon this Jesus guy and start saying, you know what, maybe we could cast out some demons in the name of Jesus. And so they kind of thought they had the right formula. And so they said, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims, and they tried to drive out the the demons. And then this is, I think this is one of the funniest parts in the book of Acts. It says this in verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? That was my best demon voice. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. (laughs) And I love the next line. It's like, yeah. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, right? Someone for sure got this on their phone and put it on YouTube. Like, this went viral for sure. Like, you would totally talk about this. And both Jews and Greeks, and, all, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So in this place where all this magic stuff is happening, Paul is demonstrating through the power of Jesus that the power of Christ is greater than the power of any incantation. And the power dynamic that happens there is so significant. So many people hear about this. So many people come to faith in Christ in Ephesus that they start giving up their magic practices. And in fact, what happens is the silversmiths who make all the the, the statues that people would worship, their business starts to dry up. Because so many people are abandoning idolatry and turning to Jesus. And so they have a meeting and they say, we got to stop this. And a big riot breaks out. And it's really an interesting part of of the book. And, And that's all the background of what's happening in, in this book of the Ephesians. And so if you have your Bible, you can flip back to Ephesians. Now, here, here's one more thing by way of introduction that is just so fascinating to me about Ephesians. It's the least situational of all of Paul's letters. 
If you're not familiar with the New Testament, a lot of the New Testament is a series of letters written by the Apostle Paul to a different group of people, right? It might be written to the Galatians or written to the Thessalonians or written to the Corinthians. This is the least situational. Here's what that means. Most of Paul's letters were written because of a situation. Somebody had asked a question, he's writing to answer it. A controversy had broken out, he's writing to speak into it. A problem is happening in the church where something is healthy, he's writing to address it. But Ephesians is not like that. There is not an apparent situation that he's answering. In fact, a lot of scholars and commentators have gone, what's the point of this book? Because he's not really answering a specific thing. So what you have here, this is fascinating, I think, for our sake, is that Ephesians is very proactive, not reactive. And why I think that's beneficial for us is because when we studied Galatians, we did this a few years ago, and, and all of God's word is inspired, it all matters, but what was hard in going through Galatians was there's this very specific controversy about circumcision. I've never thought about circumcision as a controversy in the church. No one has ever come to me and said, what's your view on circumcision, right? This is not an issue. That we face. And so when we study that book, we got to do all these leaps to go, okay, how does that relate to us? But in Ephesians, it's written proactively to say, here's what it looks like to be the people of God. And so it's relevant and more obviously relevant to us, regardless of where we're coming from. Here's what Clinton Arnold, he's a leading scholar on Ephesians, here's what he says The contents are simple enough and so foundational that the letters should be read and studied by every new believer. Yet, the theological concepts are so profound that the most mature Christians never seem to master its depths. Then think about this sentence. This letter summarizes what it means to be a Christian better than any other book of the Bible. Wow, that's a, that's a big statement. Why? Well, he says this. It clarifies the heart of the Christian faith explores the dynamics of a personal relationship with Christ, sets forth God's overall plan for the church, and draws out the implications of what it means to live as a Christian. This is great, because if you're brand new to this, you need it. And if you've been around Christianity and you've walked with the Lord for decades, this is still going to help you have more of a heart of the Christian faith, more of the dynamics of a personal relationship with Christ, more of an understanding of what the church is about. And I love that line, Uh, Draw out the implications of what it means to live as a Christian. Now, that line, what it means to live as a Christian, I want to add this, what it means to live as a Christian in tomorrow's world, in a world that's more complex, in a world that's constantly changing, in a world that's very uncertain. This book is going to give us the ability to know what it means to live as a Christian in tomorrow's world. And so I just spent a little bit of time this week reflecting on tomorrow's world. And it's really also kind of today's world. Tomorrow's world, what's it like? Well, it's confused about God. Is there a God at all? Could there be a God who's both powerful and beautiful? I mean, because we look at all the tragedy in the world, we look at all the things that are heartbreaking in the world, and we go, okay, is there really a God? Could a God allow all this? And if there is a God, could, is he really powerful if he allows this? Is he really beautiful if he allows this? I mean, there's a lot of understandable confusion about that in tomorrow's world. We're confused about purpose. What's the purpose of the world? What's my purpose? Is there meaning? 
Is there meaning in all of this? Is all of this happening for any discernible reason or is it just happening? Is there a progression to history? Is history progressing somewhere? And if it is, to where? Where's it going? Where's it headed? Tomorrow's world is pluralistic and multiracial, which in a lot of ways is very good, but it also is very confusing and difficult. How can people from such different backgrounds live in unity? I'm especially mindful of that question this weekend, right? As we celebrate Martin Luther King Day tomorrow, and I thank God for his vision. I thank God for his dream. I thank God for his work and his sacrifice, and yet you can't help but think we're still so far away from what he envisioned. Is that part ever going to get any better? It's confusing. It's uncertain. Tomorrow's world is skeptical of the church. What is the church anyway? Do we need it? Does it matter? A lot of us have had real bad experiences with church that we just as soon leave the whole thing behind and go, I like Jesus. I'm not sure about the church. Tomorrow's world is confused about morality. Is there such thing as right and wrong? If there is, is it a universal right and wrong, or is it just your right and wrong and my right and wrong, and and who gets to decide? And is there a a right that's beautiful? Because I don't just want to do what, like, is right. I guess I should because it's right, but but is it compelling? Is it good? Do I like it? There's a lot of confusion about that. There's confusion about family. What is a family? What is a marriage? What's a healthy marriage? What's a healthy family? Is it even possible? There's a lot of us today and looking ahead even more who are spiritual but not religious. Might even describe ourselves that way. You know what? I'm not a religious person, but I am spiritual. We go, okay, great. Well, what is true spirituality? And are there spiritual powers? Right? Because some people go, there's all that exists is what you can see. But people who are spiritual but not religious would say, well, but maybe there is real spiritual power. Maybe there is something transcendent. Maybe there is something bigger. And what is it? And how do I connect to it? And, and is it the most powerful of all the powers? There's last confusion about identity. Who am I really? What defines me? Some of us are from traditional type backgrounds where family is what defined you and your origin and your group and your tribe and that sort of background is what defined you. Some of us are more from a kind of Western idea where your individual achievements, that's what defines you. Is it your family that defines you? Is it your past that defines you? Is it your desires that define you? Is that your ambitions that desire? What, what, what defines you? What's your identity? What gives you that identity? Now, here's what strikes me as I think about this. This is not just people out there who aren't Christians who are thinking through this stuff. Many of us, I would say most, if not all of us, are wrestling through different dynamics about this. And so living faithfully in tomorrow's world means we want to have a Bible that speaks to that. We don't just want to come and have like a rah, rah, yay, Jesus thing on Sunday and then have no clue about how that faith intersects with the other six days of our life. I don't want that. Do you want that? And, and so Christians, we need this. This is not just messages for people who aren't here. This is messages for us because we need to have clarity and vision for what it means to be faithful to God in tomorrow's world. So if any of these things intrigue you, 
They're all addressed in Ephesians, every single one. And so all you need to do is come back for the next 39 weeks. That's it, okay? Put an appointment in your calendar. I'm coming to church. I'm going to hear it because we are going to answer these little by little, bit by bit over the course of this year. Now, what I want to do for the rest of our time here today, this morning, is do an overview of the book. So I just gave you the reasons why you should keep coming. Now I want to just kind of overview the book by looking at six verses, one verse from each of the six chapters of this book. And my sense is that if you can remember these numbers, you could actually go back and remember the big picture view of Ephesians, okay? So the good news is, is as far as numbers go, it's relatively easy to remember. Remember, remember when you used to learn numbers? You used to learn phone numbers? Now you're just like, I don't know anybody's number. I just have to look at my phone. Okay, so if, if you were ever good at remembering numbers, this is pretty cool because four of the, four of the verses end in 10, and then in chapter 4 and 5, there's a little play with each other that is kind of fun, okay? So you have 110, 210, 310, and then it gets messy, 415, and 514, and then back to 610. If you can remember that, you can go back through the book of Ephesians and get the big picture, okay? So what I want to do is look at each of these verses and overview this thrust, this theme. Let's look at what is the forest of Ephesians before we dive next week into some of the trees, okay? So first, chapter 1, verse 10, 110. At the beginning of the book, uh, Paul is talking about the, the greatness of God, and here's kind of where it's culminating Verse 10, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Paul is going to talk in the opening verses that we'll look at about how God has chosen us and God has predestined us for adoption and God has done all these wonderful things of redemption. But the reason that he's doing it all is found here in verse 10 of chapter 1, which is to unite all things in heaven and things on earth. We tend to think that there's earth down here, and there's heaven up there, and at best, if we know the Lord, we die here and go off to heaven. But the biblical story is actually that heaven and earth are united, that because of the work of Jesus Christ, heaven is coming to earth, that actually when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he was resurrected as the first fruits of the new creation. He was the proof that God is making all things new. And that's where all of this salvation is heading. And so get this, Ephesians is a cosmic book. It will speak to individual salvation, but it will speak to so much more. It will speak to God making all things new. Now, now I know that that whole concept is new to many of us. And so a number of years ago, I showed a video that I'm about to show you here in just a moment. And I got so much feedback about how helpfully paradigm shifting it was that I thought I'd show it again. It's by the Bible Project. They have so many great animated videos on YouTube that you can find, and this one's called Heaven and Earth. And uh, go ahead and take a look at this. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here, there's trees, rivers, mountains, but my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate. 
spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together, perfectly no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty. But human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which 
seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. Isn't that helpful? Yeah. I find that incredibly helpful. And and really, what that did is visually in five minutes, it explained verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So Ephesians is not just an individual book, it is that, but it's also a cosmic book. And then in chapter 2, what we start to learn is that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God made us alive together with him. And then here's chapter 2, verse 10, which says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, don't read that and think that we come into relationship with Jesus by our good works, because just a few verses earlier, he said, we're saved by grace through faith, not as a result of our works or else we would boast. But the reality is after we've been saved, after we've been given this new heart, then we are God's workmanship. That word workmanship is the Greek word that means poetry. We are his poetry, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. So having been made alive by God's grace, we are now the means by which heaven comes to the world. And the proof of this, the proof that that God is making all things new in the church is, as we'll see at the end of chapter 2, a part that many Christians have not paid much attention to in the book of Ephesians, we'll, we'll look at it, is the proof of this is that Jews and Gentiles are now reconciled. These two people groups from these two different ethnicities who could not get along are all of a sudden one in Christ. The barrier that kept them apart has been broken down in Christ, and God begins to make a family that the world could never create. And so chapter 110, God's making all things new. Chapter 210, we are God's workmanship through which he's doing this amazing work of renewal in the world. And chapter 3, verse 10. The church is a family whose existence displays the beauty of God's power. Look at what it says in verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
So through the church, the manifold, multidimensional, multifaceted wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now that phrase, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, that's going to show up a bunch in the book of Ephesians. As I told you, Ephesians was the metropolis of magic. They were very interested in the demonic realm. They were very interested in the powers that you could manipulate for your own good. And so Paul talks about those powers a bunch in this book. He describes them as the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The fallen angels who've rebelled against God and are now influencing the world for evil, they still can't help but notice the church. Because the church is showing, it's making known, it's demonstrating the manifold wisdom of God. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been around somebody who was famous? Maybe they were like famous, famous, or maybe they were just famous like, oh, that was a musician you knew, no one else knew, but you knew who they were. Or or maybe someone who's kind of well-known or important in your work or in your field or your industry. If, If you ever have a chance where you're kind of around somebody like that, here's what I've found. Whenever I've been in that case, I remember one time, being at a restaurant with Molly, and uh, we saw this NFL quarterback come in, and we recognized who he was, and I found that every few minutes, I would look over, what did he order? What's he eating? How's it, you know, like every, just like, I just couldn't help, I was like kind of preoccupied, there's this really kind of important person, and I would just keep looking at him. Here's what that verse is saying. That verse is saying that the demons, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, the people who are fighting for evil in the world, they can't help but keep noticing the church. Because it is the church where these pockets of heaven and earth exist as the people of God go out into the world, and it gets the attention of the powers. And so we are, through Jesus, displaying a new reality to the world. So 110, heaven and earth are being made new. 210, we're God's poetry that's helping it happen. 310, because of Christ's grace, we're showing off the wisdom of God to the world. And then we get to the weird numbers, okay? 415, 415. Look at chapter four, verse 15. What is it that makes the church distinct? It's here in chapter four, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. What is it that makes the church unique? Love. Love. The willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand payback or that the person is deserving. That is how Jesus has loved us. And that is now what we're growing up into as we're speaking the truth in love. We're growing up into the image of Jesus. This gets at our question that we asked earlier about identity. Here's what this means. This means our identity, what defines us, is Christ. Not our family, not our past, not our desires, not our lifestyle, not our future, not our hopes, not our accomplishments, Christ. He's the one who defines us. He's the one who gives us our identity. And anything else that we're grabbing onto cannot hold. I remember uh, probably, I don't know, six or so months ago, I was watching my son Hank take a bath. And uh, he's nine months, so don't. That could be really weird if he were older, but he's nine months, so I'm watching him take a bath, and, uh, and, and he was so mesmerized by something, and I just kept being mesmerized watching him be mesmerized. He, he would sit there in the bath, and the faucet was pouring down, and he would grab, try to grab the water, and he couldn't get it. Grab. He couldn't get it, he, and he just kept doing this. 
Right? I think he had to be totally like befuddled because he's very good at grabbing a ball or grabbing his mom's necklace or grabbing my beard. And every time he grabs something, he gets it. You know, and so he grabs the water and he just kept looking. Like, why can't I grab it? That's life, building an identity apart from Jesus. This thing will, this thing will define me. No, this thing will define me. No, this thing will be good. No, that, that kind of family. No, this future. No, this job. No. And you're just grabbing water. You can't do it. And so this says, no, it's growing up, speaking the truth in love. We become like Christ. That's who our identity is. And then in chapter 5, verse 14, so again, you get the 415, 514. What we see there is Paul quotes the Old Testament scripture. He says, therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What is it that could make the church God's poetry? Because I look around the church, and it's pretty ordinary. I'm pretty ordinary. What is it that could make the heavenly places take notice of the people of God? That seems hard to believe. What is it that would make us like Christ? I mean, really, we could become like Christ? Seriously? What is it? Here it is. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. The thing that gives the church the power to be who she is called to be is the resurrection. We are not just the same old people, slightly improved. We are new people. And the rest of chapter 5 describes how the Spirit of God is poured out into us, giving us new heart, new desires, new ability to serve, new desire to love. And then finally, the last verse that we'll look at here this morning is chapter 6, verse 10, where it says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Get this, the the book of Ephesians is not about how the church is the hero of the story. It is about how the church is participating in the renewing work that our real hero Jesus is doing, which is why we're to be strong, not in our own strength, not our own impressiveness, strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Right, I always love to, uh, when I'm traveling, I like to uh, go on the walking sidewalks at the airport. You, know, you ever get to go on those? And if, especially if I'm with my kids, I'll like really walk fast on the, on the thing. And I'll be like, look at how fast I am. And it's like, I'm not fast. <laughs> the sidewalk's making you fast. And so much of us in our world is going, look at me, look at me, look at me. Aren't I impressive? Aren't I fast? Aren't I strong? Aren't I great? But the people of God are to say, no, no. I'm just on a moving sidewalk. He's doing the work. He's the strength. He's the life. He's the one that really is shining through me to the world. What if we could be that new people? What if we could be that new people who lived in the grace and strength of Jesus, who demonstrated the power and the might and the beauty of God to the world? What if we could be that faithful people who despite our questions and despite our areas of confusion could begin to live faithfully in tomorrow's world? What if we could be that? That's what Ephesians is about. So come back next week. We'll pick up there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this book. Thank you for how your word is breathed out by you. 
and it instructs us and corrects us and rebukes us and trains us for righteousness. And we pray that you would do that now and in these coming months through this word. God, I pray that you would allow us to be your people, grateful for the work that you've done in Christ to make us new, that you've saved us by grace and grace alone, and anticipating, Lord, the future, the world to come, as you unite all things in heaven and things on earth. God, help us to be participants, not just passive observers, but participants in the work that you're doing to establish these pockets of heaven on earth. We pray for that in Christ's name. Amen.